Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, uh, this series is designed to sort of uh, help us as Christians to have discerning con- uh effective conversations with other people that may may uh, see things differently than us or think differently than us you know and uh we're we've been addressing we are in the process of addressing five different affirmations to learn how to have these hard conversations in love bringing thoughtful perspective to challenging topics we don't want to compromise in our beliefs or our convictions, our values as Bible-believing Christians, but we do want to be able to communicate well and in love. Um, first week, we began by asking, are we reflecting or overcoming the divisions that we see out there, right? Are we reflecting or overcoming them, right? Remembering that Jesus prayed for our unity, and we looked at that passage, and uh, and we remember we said that thought is the unifying factor uh, uh, are the defining factor of unity uh, with Christ and, and in the body, uh, his body, the church. Uh, our first affirmation was that God has all truth, uh, but we don't have a perfect understanding of it, right? That we have limits in our own ability to understand it. We shouldn't, we shouldn't that doesn't make us uh, afraid of having strong convictions, strong beliefs or values, things like that. But we've got to couple that with a humbling knowledge that we can be wrong, especially in the murky waters of uh, opinion on hot topics that we are all faced with right now. We said uh, then that being loving is as important as being right, um, and we, that we love truthfully and we truthfully love and that love without truth lies and, and uh, truth without love kills. And that was last week. Uh, this week is our third affirmation in the series, uh, and that is that the Spirit can create unity where it once seemed impossible. The Spirit can create unity where it once seemed, seemed impossible. Turn with me to page 756 in your church Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 15, page 756, we're going to begin uh, towards the end in verse 30 and 31, but then we're going to jump back to the beginning of the chapter in verse 1 and 2 and go from there. But page 756, Acts 15, verse 30 and 31, it says, so the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. And the people read it and we're glad for its encouraging message. Yeah, man, colds stink. <laughs> now, these two verses are the end result of a sharp disagreement in the early church about what it meant to become a Christian, right? It, it began in Antioch, obviously, and then it extended to Jerusalem, to, the, to the, the Jerusalem council there. So let's go back to the very beginning of Acts 15 and verses 1 and 2, and let's find out what the argument was all about, all right? And it says this, verse 1, Acts 15, uh, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the, unbel- or the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute, or dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. All right, so that's what's going on. Now, I, I just, I love Paul. Paul loves Jesus so completely. 
He loves Jesus so completely enough to vehemently guard the integrity of the gospel message because it is a, it is a matter of life and death for all of humanity. This is the message of life. This is the message of eternal life. This is the message of reconnecting ourselves with God the Father. And, and, and that message has to be kept pure and kept uh, correct, right? And this is an example of good, mature uh, argument in the church when it does involve the integrity of the gospel, right? And when truth is compromised to the point of leading people astray from from Christ it's it's very important for those with right knowledge to stand up to counter strongly in love which it seems like these guys did this account when viewed in in its place in the book of acts you know and as a whole forms the culmination of this great struggle by the early church to understand itself you know it's getting its feet you know up underneath it right um, the early church had both Jewish and Gentile, uh, which were pagan background believers, coming to Christ. And, and all of Acts records this extensively all the way up to Acts 15, as a matter of fact. And we know that Christianity at, at its core is Jewish, right? That our message embodies the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, that Jesus was Jewish. He was the Jewish Messiah. We, we get all that. We, yet we also know that the, from the Old and New Testament alike, that God had always intended, from the very beginning, always intended for Israel to be a missionary force, bringing all people groups out there, all nations, all people groups, uh, into relationship with himself. That he was using them for that, that purpose. And that there was a time before the coming of the Messiah, before Jesus showed up on the scene, that you would be baptized as a Jew in order to become a member of God's people. That you would do these things. You would, you would be circumcised and all that stuff if you wanted to become uh, one of God's people. So this argument from the Jewish side is actually kind of understandable. right? We get it, right? Sadly... In this time, many Jewish background believers couldn't see that God had always intended that Israel be a witness to, of, of his grace to the Gentile nations. They were way too immersed in their own religious culture, right? Faith to them was, wasn't necessarily an issue of God's grace uh, or God's atoning grace, right? It was much more about just becoming Jewish, right? And they were too enmeshed to see God's call to faith by grace uh, in this whole thing, right? And as a result, the culture of, of, of the Judaism from which Christianity is, uh, arose was sort of a legalistic sort of religious practice which sought to earn God's favor by observing certain ceremonies and, and, and keeping certain laws, circumcision being one of them. Since they, they missed, uh, they, they had missed God's grace depicted in these practices that led up to the Messiah. All of those practices were to reveal to Israel the fact that they couldn't measure up to God's perfect law, that they couldn't follow it perfectly, that, that they needed God's grace. It was to reveal that, uh, that sin in them deserved death, that they needed salvation, and the fact that only God could save them. He was the only one that could accomplish that for them. And it was always foreshadowing uh, His grace coming in the Messiah, in Jesus' atoning sacrifice. Judaism also held to this sort of exclusive 
nationalistic outlook, which regarded uh, Israel alone as the people of God. It required non-Jews desiring to be identified with God to submit to circum- circumcision and, and to practice the whole Mosaic law through the offering of all these prescribed sacrifices and different things like that. Again, to be fair, before the arrival of Jesus, that would have been a fair assumption. And it's hard for people to give up tradition. It's hard for people to change, right? But when Jesus came on the scene, things changed. Things changed. God's moral law and the need for repentance always remains. That part of the Mosaic law still remains. But Christ fulfilled all the civic and ceremonial requirements of the Mosaic law, and it made all of those sacrifices and all those ceremonies and things like that unnecessary any longer. And the earliest Jewish Christians in Jerusalem seemed to have held at least some of these views uh, even after recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. They still kind of held on to this stuff. And their insistence that Gentile believers be circumcised and submit to the whole Mosaic law required these Gentile believers to become Jews uh, nationally and socially and religiously in order to become a Christian. It was a huge uh, affront to the gospel. And this is the very issue that Paul and Barnabas and others took umbrage with, and rightly so. They should have. It was good to have this argument, right? So they make their trip to Jerusalem. They, they go there to argue this, you know, and, they, and they, they sway the apostles and the elders to a proper understanding and, and, and unity on the essence of the gospel uh, as salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone. They all agree on this, right? Paul and his companions, I think, were very astute. They were reading culture in light of Scripture, which we all need to do. Read culture in light of Scripture and, and, and uh, understanding when culture was undermining the gospel message. And as they journeyed to Jerusalem, you know, they, they, they run across people that hear these stories about all these Gentiles finding faith and salvation in Jesus alone, which made everybody really glad. So they share these stories. And as they arrive in Jerusalem, they're accepted by this church leadership council. But if you look at verse 5, it says this, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and be required to keep the law of Moses. So here are these guys, this group of guys, saying this right here in Jerusalem, right? And these were Pharisees. They were experts in the law. They had, they had like made this their whole life. So we can understand why they would feel this way, you know. Although they just, they just didn't recognize that it wasn't commiserate with the gospel, that it was actually undermining the gospel. So they all discussed this issue together there and Peter one of the apostles who was a present there in Jerusalem uh, convinced stands up and and in agreement with Paul and all his friends and he's what Peter's doing here when he when he responds is he's recalling if you remember his vision in Acts chapter 10 if you remember that vision it it taught him that you know uh, that ceremonial requirements should not be placed on Gentiles you know, and, and after that vision, he actually meets Cornelius, a Gentile guy who, who becomes a Christian. And at that time, Peter said this in, in Acts 10, you don't have to turn there, but it, he says, I now realize 
how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation, every people group, right? Every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right. So there you go, right? So then in verse 10 and 11 of Acts 15, Peter concludes, he says, now then, why do you try, he's saying this to the Pharisees that are talking there, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors uh, have been able to bear? No, he says, verse 11, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. So this is, gr- this is good news, right? James then stands up and he starts quoting Amos and Isaiah from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures to further this point. So he goes back to Scripture for the argument, right? And he, and he, and he starts talking through that. And everybody falls silent as they're listening to this very well-reasoned ar- argument, you know, as they're going through things. And all agree on this and they decide to send the people back some people back to Antioch and they they want to address this false teaching through an official letter so they write the letter and we have that letter right here in Acts 15 verses 23 through 29 it's kind of cool that we have the letter and uh, it and it outlines their conclusions right and the only thing that they added were a few prohibitions suggested by James in the way of spiritual advice to, to, to these Gentile believers. Uh, and it says this in verse 28. It says, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. So, Gentiles are released from all the Jewish ceremonial and civic law, you know, all that stuff. But did you miss it? What I just read? Because doesn't that sound like they just added requirements on them, right? It seems that it would be counter to what they had just concluded, right? That they were to be added no more requirements other than just faith in Christ, right? To become a Christian. But we've got to understand that these certain prescriptions or prohibitions were against certain uh, specific pagan religious practices, which would have traditionally appealed to the Gentile background believer. And, And it would have led them astray, and it would have shipwrecked their faith, just like being required to follow the Mosaic Law would have done, right? So all these simple prohibitions were intended to deal with conditions limited to a particular time and place, you know, and they're all tied to the pagan practices of the day. And, and yet, yet only one of them is supercultural. In other words, it rises above cultural and it is timeless and it's, it's to be in, 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 in our lives always. And that, and that is, uh, to abstain from sexual immorality because of what we heard last week that our sexual lives our sexual activity is actually a spiritual issue that that is reflective of god or not in our lives right so that's why it's that important so this is a remarkable passage it really is in reading the rest of Acts 15 and then as well as the book of Galatians, it's all about this stuff, we understand the depth of the conflict that is going on between Jews and Gentiles in the New Testament. You know, they're, they're to the breaking point sometimes, right? 
And Paul, if, you, if you've read the New Testament, Paul uh, addresses this issue quite extensively in almost all of his writings to some degree or another because it was that important. It was that important. See, if, if they had not addressed this, if they had just shrugged their shoulders and said, ah, let them do what they want, we would have lost the essence of the gospel. We would not have the gospel as it is today. We wouldn't have the gospel of grace. There, there would have been no freedom and salvation in our gospel message any longer. Judaism would have just continued in Christian disguise and as if Jesus had never made payment for our sin, as if he had never died and rose again or anything like that. It would have fall, Christianity would have fallen in line with all the other religions of the world that, that try to attain favor by God, you know, with God by, by all their good works, by trying to measure up all the time and all that stuff. But thanks to people like Paul and his friends, Christianity stands alone among all the spiritual and religious philosophies of the world. It is so uniquely different than all of them out there. It's a message of grace. It, that, we, that we can't attain a relationship with God in any other way than, than through Jesus, through his death, through his resurrection, through faith in him. Salvation is, is by grace, by grace is, is through faith alone, right? Ephesians chapter 2 or Acts 4.12. And there is no other name, you know, in, on, on heaven and earth, you know, that we, we can be saved other than in, in, in the name of Jesus, right? And that's what they were guarding. Now, what you don't see in Acts 15, and I think this is very interesting, is that this issue actually caused a major personal clash between Peter and, uh, and Paul. You don't see that in Acts 15, right? But if we read around our memory verse for this series, um, we see that this circumstance is referenced by Paul in the chapter 2 of Galatians, and, and Peter is actually one of the faulty parties, Right? So turn to page 795 in your church Bibles. I think this is so interesting. Page 795, we're in Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. And it says, When Cephas, which is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. This is Paul writing. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. In other words, he was really buddy-buddy with all the Gentiles and, you know, commiserate with them. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Those Pharisees saying, you've got to be circumcised to be saved, right? The other, and then verse 13, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. So that, they're, so, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So this is, gives a little bit more light to Acts chapter 15. And this is the exact issue the Jerusalem Council addresses in that chapter. And it seems that Peter had sort of a fear of man problem. Like these are big important guys, big religious guys coming down to Antioch. And, you know, he, he kind of kowtows to them. Um, he, you know, he, he just, he's going along with the crowd instead of standing on conviction, right? And being really clear in what he believes from the scriptures and from, from truth, right? And this happened to the extent that even Barnabas was led astray, although it seems like he must have come around pretty quickly. But it continues in verse 14. It says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them, 
in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works, uh, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Verse 17. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among sinners, so the law is convicting them, right? Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? And he says, absolutely not. Verse 18, if I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Verse 19, for, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God, right? So he, you see here how the law is revealing our need for salvation, revealing sin in us and our need for God to move in our lives. Verse 20, which is our memory verse, I have been crucified with Christ. Now you know where this verse fits in. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And we'll end with verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be attained or gained through, through the law, Christ died for nothing. So he says it right there. If, if you make these people do this, then Christ died for nothing, right? So this was an important and a very sincere theological conflict in the church. That's what it was. And it struck at the heart of two different groups, you know, their, their identities as people, and it had implications for what the church understood the gospel to be. The stakes were very, very, very high. I can't say that strong, more strongly. And it seemed probably to them that they would not get beyond this. This was a non-negotiable. This is a, like a, a roadblock that they wouldn't get past. But after much debate, we get these wonderful words in that letter to Antioch from the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. He's, it, it, they say, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Now this question figures into nearly all of Paul's letters. And yet, at this moment, in this moment right here, we're, we're told that the Holy Spirit worked in a way uh, no one had expected and that the outcome was great joy for the people in Antioch. Similarly, I believe that our calling in this cultural moment involves such faith. Right now, in, in where we find ourselves in our culture and in America and in, in our Christianity, the unity of the church is in question. It really is. It, it feels as though it's stressed to the point of snapping sometimes. Big disagreements. You know, in this series, we've addressed some difficult topics which have the ability to divide and destroy unity. It really, they really do. In certain issues, if we allow ourselves to be guided by our culture and, or just by experience, disregarding the Scripture's leading, we'll find ourselves yet again at an Acts 15 moment. We will. Let's remember, let's be clear, this argument presented to the Jerusalem Council was answered in three ways. It was answered firstly by Scripture. What did Scripture say? It was answered by the leading of the Holy Spirit. 
And it was answered as well by mature believers who knew what they were talking about and were willing to have the hard conversation and address the issue with other people. That's how it was won, three ways. Faithful believers thinking rightly, willing to confront in love. All issues, all issues in the church will have been and will be addressed in this time, in this way, in this time, or in times. My head is so cloudy. (laughs) We need only trust God in this whole process. It means we strive to love truthfully and truthfully love just as Paul and his companions did. It means that we love that, that love without truth lies and, and uh, truth without love kills. So we want we want to balance it all that. They, they seem to know that as they confronted these things. Remember, Jesus prayed for our unity. Jesus prayed for our unity. You can't have a, a better person praying for you, right? And unity can demonstrate the nature of God. It can call others to faith and it can lead to great joy in seeing the work of the Holy Spirit leading us to life-giving thought together in unity under Christ. But sadly, we often feel that unity is not possible because the other side is so, so, so wrong. Remember, the deciding factor is scriptural authority. That's what it is. The deciding factor factor in our relationships when we come into disagreement on things is scriptural authority and and the leading of the holy spirit and the faithful believers that are willing to challenge wrong influences you got to remember let's 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 talk from the other side someone lost this argument there was a group of guys there in jerusalem that lost this argument and in antioch that lost this argument The Pharisees had to give up their wrong opinions. And they had to come in line with the Scriptures. They had to augment their thinking to the Gospel as defined by Scripture and the Spirit of God. They did. They were wrong. Peter, the rock of the church, (laughs) right? The the rock of the church had to make adjustments at least in how he interacted with with, uh, Gentile believers. Barnabas was also brought back to center. They had to be corrected. Sometimes people in church draw wrong conclusions on what the Christian life is. They do. And and they must be brought back to center because it's that important, right? Like Paul, the mature Christians more concerned with the state of a soul and the integrity of the gospel than they are with the affinities and feelings of individuals Because these discussions concern life and death for all of humanity. They are that, that, that important. So let's remember, as we face hard conversations with each other or with others outside of here, first, you may very well be right. You may very well be right. And we long for unity. with, With our brothers and sisters. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. There are times when someone's conscience requires them to break fellowship and separate from others. We get that. It's a sad reality. And if that happens, we have to pray for grace and healing. We want that to happen. There have been times when people have broken fellowship with the local church over certain issues and had to leave for the sake of their own integrity. Integrity, that's certainly understandable. It's understandable. But that doesn't mean everybody's totally lost when they do that. I don't think so. I believe what I said a few weeks back. 
that everyone's on a journey and, and that they may need to indulge their inerrancy, their, their errancy for a time in order to see how their thinking doesn't work and to come back to conviction on truth. People will be very different in 10 years' time. Second, we may very well be wrong. We may very well be wrong, right? The Pharisees were wrong at that time. Peter was at least wrong in how he was treating Gentile Christians when Jewish people were present, right? And this is why we walk in humility, right? And we stand upon the great cloud of witnesses and not just our own understanding that we don't just so quickly give up what the church has believed for centuries. We can't do that because it's really, really, really dangerous. It's really dangerous. We trust in what the church over the centuries has concluded since Christians long past have already been through these arguments. They have. They have come to unity in these difficult conversations after much scriptural study and uh, much leading from the Holy Spirit. So even though, even though certain Christian convictions don't always sit well with us, we do trust that the church has faced these issues before for very good reason. It's amazing how things which at one point seemed like so insurmountable, right? You could never get past them. You could never see it any, any, any differently. Like such insurmountable barriers, but they can be resolved over time. Isn't that strange? Real faith is trusting God in the moments that we cannot see the way forward. When we just, like, we, we just don't see a thing. I like to call it the third, the third option, the third door. Like you see the two doors, you know, oh, this is right, that's wrong. Well, there's always a third option. It's like, it's like the hidden door, you know, and you can go through it. If we can find faith to pray for a sick person, maybe we can also find faith to pray for unity with somebody that disagrees with us, Right? Thirdly, we act with patience in conviction. We act with patience in conviction. It's helpful to ask the question, what difference does this disagreement make in our practical day-to-day relationship and ministry together? Right? Even if we can't see a way forward, we can delay separation long enough to give the Spirit time to do His work in somebody's life. Being right and being loving are equally important. We said that last week. And we don't, but we don't pursue correctness out of pride, right? That's not what we do. But we do speak with spiritual conviction. We do have things that we stand on. We temper our words, though, and our attitudes with grace and with mercy and with kindness and with love and with patience, recognizing that people change over a long period of time And the Holy Spirit convicts and not us. The Holy Spirit convicts and not us. It doesn't mean that we don't say something, but we we do know that he's the one that convicts and not us. And oftentimes conviction comes through a lot of, you know, the knocks and the bumps of life to to happen in a person. 
We recognize that people change very slowly. We, so we act with wisdom. We act with discernment. We act with forbearance in people's lives. We have patience as people grow in process. We're growing in process. However, we never, never, never sweep under the rug the need to speak truth well. It's important when, it's, when it, has, it, when it uh, challenges the integrity of the gospel. G.K. Chesterton, uh, Vinny sent me this quote last week. He uh, wrote, Tolerance is the virtue of the, men, uh, of the man without convictions. Tolerance is the virtue of the man without convictions. Christians are people of conviction. That's what we are, right? Because conviction on God's truthful message is a matter of soul and, and it's a matter of everlasting life to all of human, humankind. It's this, our message is the message of life. It's that important. The Spirit can create unity where it once seemed impossible through conviction of word and spirit among believers, but it does take our devotion to the Lord first working in relationship between us. It takes us staying at the table prayerfully, studying the Scriptures, and talking things out. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you as we bring the tithe before you. We, we thank you for your love for us, for your grace, for your mercy, for your patience with us as we uh, struggle through things and struggle through hard conversations and struggle through this culture right now and, and all the things that, we're, we're, you know, that are challenges to our hearts and our minds and our thinking and our relationships. We just pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us wisdom, that you would put, like, pour out your discernment, your wisdom, uh, your love, your compassion, and your truth on your church. Make us people of conviction that speak really, really well. In, in, in great ways. And we pray that you would bless our tithe right now as we bring it before you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want, if you could pass the tithe boxes there.